George, for those who are telling me to shut up, they told Hillary that a couple of months ago. You know what I tell them? Go to hell. I'm going to tell my story. You tell them, girl. You tell them. <laughs> oh, Donna. It's a little late, though. It's a little late, right? It's a bit late. Too little, too late. She had that interview with uh, Tucker on Fox. Yeah. And he kept asking her, it's like, okay, so, you know, let's get into it. Did CNN know that you gave her the questions? I love them together. She she just, like, wouldn't say it. She's like, you're not going to get me to say something that I'm not saying. You're not going to put words in my mouth, Tucker. And <laughs> at one point, he was just like, he was like, okay, but really, like, what, you know, the, you gave him the questions. And then she's like, I didn't want them to be blindsided. And he just burst out laughing. I know. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, they were both, like, pros just going at it. I mean, it was funny. It was, they were making fun of how ridiculous the situation was. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think, though? Like, maybe it's kind of stating the obvious, but like, it's easy to say the party's hopeless, like the Democratic Party's hopeless. But I mean, what would you really say to the idea that maybe just needs to be like altered according to some new set of standards, you know, like what happened um, away from labor constituencies to identitarian community politics, like in the early 70s? Like, why can't we just transform it to something else, you know? Well, it's not even transforming into something else. It's like, if you see multiple of her clips on, on these interviews, she's just like calling herself like, I'm old school activist and like, this is what I care about in the party. And so I, my sense of it is like, she's trying to turn back the clock and turning against the sort of Brooklyn, like data driven guys or the algorithm guys and be like, that clearly failed. So we got to get back to basics. I mean, I, I believe that she is, yeah. She's riding the Bernie wave, right? She's like, she starts the whole thing by saying, I promised Bernie I was going to investigate, and I finally got to the heart of the matter because I'm with the people, I'm with the activists. And so she she, she gives, like, a list of names uh, of Democrats when she was interviewed by Tucker. Like, it says she thinks are, like, the good guys versus the bad guys that are working with Clinton. So I think she's just setting herself up to you know, be part of the renewal of the Democrats, which, again, it's like Bernie people are used as a way of propping up the bureaucratic Democratic Party, right? They think they're using the Democrats, but the Democrats are clearly using them. That's why she keeps calling herself an activist. Exactly. No, and it's all for the blue wave. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think, do you think there's a difference between like Donna Brazile style nostalgia for like the Democratic Party as machine, you know, which is sort of like the ruling class party idea of like compromise and inclusion versus the like radical party of the Republicans? Like, do you think that that's different from like what others in like the DSA, you know, want to see the party turn into? I mean, it seems like Brazil wants to literally go back to the the party machine uh, model of success versus a lot of younger people who are trying to push it to become something else. What's really bankrupt about the second strategy? Or hopeless, I guess, about well, that. Well, it's that it already failed, right? Or, I mean, I guess the bankruptcy was... <laughs> it's like, well, Obama won. Obama was great, question mark. Uh, was he? What was achieved? And let's get back to what, what got Obama voted. I mean, the expectation that Obama was the... You know, that was the revival of the Democratic Party. That the Democratic was going to be... Through yeah. Chicago political machinery? Yeah, well, for sure. That's one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I, like, I actually don't, don't know that much about what the DSAers are thinking. Um, but I just get the impulse of like calling bullshit on, on this Brazil campaign. 
It's the Seth Ackerman article in Jacobin. The argument is that you have to, you know, fight the local battles and that people that are running on Democratic Party tickets can get away with making arguments for socialist reform at that level. Right. And they they back these people and several of them got elected. The question is the big picture, right? And what does that mean? Are you really thinking that you're going to peel people off the Democrats and create the new Socialist Party, really? And, you know, I don't... Um, I don't know what to say to that. I mean, I think that history should sort of speak for itself in some regard about the Democrats are not, are going to be a tool for socialists or if socialists end up just simply being the tool for Democrats to look as right. if radical. I mean, I guess it always does come back to who's using whom. So The who yep, whom question, yep, yep. like Lenin said. Who whom. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Today we have two sections. The first is going to be a conversation with Philip Cunliffe. We just published a review of Philip Cunliffe's book, Lenin Lives. It's a imagined uh, successful Russian revolution turned the international revolution in 2017. And we'll be discussing the review by Gregor Balsak in the pages of the Platypus Review. And Philip will be joining us for a discussion. And following that, we're going to have the second section on the recent platypus panel in Frankfurt at uh, Goethe University with two of our members from the Frankfurt chapter. And the panel discussion was on 1917, 2017. So we're not going to give you a history lesson. You can go read the usual leftist publications if you want to know more about the history of 1917. We're going to try to figure out why does 1917 matter? Why should we care? Why should anyone care about the Russian Revolution? Hey guys, welcome to the Potipus Review segment of Shit Potipus Says. Today we're going to be discussing the latest issue of the Potipus Review. We have four pieces in the November issue, one of which includes an interview with Mark Bray by Aaron Haggard, a Potipus member and the host of Radical Mind Show in Chicago. But we also have a book review by Gregor Bazak on Lenin Lives, Reimagining the Russian Revolution, 1917-2017, by Philip Conliffe, who happens to be joining us today to discuss this along with Pam and Audrey. Hey, how's it going? First, of course, a little bit on the book. And I think the book review summarizes this quite well, but I'll just quote. So the book imagines an alternative history of the 20th century, one in which the October Revolution was soon followed by successful revolutions in capitalist centers of the West, that is in England, France, Germany, and the big prize, the United States. Philip, I'm wondering if this is um, a good summary or you would like to add anything to that. No, it's uh, that's essentially the argument which sometimes, or the essentially the story in the book, it sometimes confuses people because obviously uh, people uh, think the Russian Revolution did succeed in as much as the Bolsheviks um, succeeded in seizing power and they succeeded in staying in power. But the, the uh, premise of the book, as mentioned in the review, is that the revolution succeeds in spreading. And that is the real success of the revolution is that it spreads to the West. This is something that really captured our attention. Um, there's, there's an assumption here that the revolution failed in its primary goal, which is the international revolution. And so the way that we started to talk about your book was that there's an implicit critique here 
of the present and the left's imagination, the left's idea of how 1917 matters or how it should matter. Because I'm wondering in what way does treating 1917 as a defeat versus a success inform how we understand it? It's something, I suppose, which I wrote the book for, um, because it's something which you can assert, but to really, I think, and you can say, you know, the intention was the Bolsheviks hoped and intended that it should spread and that there were genuine um, revolutionary possibilities, naval mutinies, strikes, industrial militancy, um, mutinies on the front, all of these things you could talk about, but to really... To really make concrete, I think, or to really flesh out what the meaning of failure looks like and to kind of wrench people. Because obviously, I mean, you know, it's uh, everybody is presentist to some degree, however much we try to avoid it. So to really break out of the presentism and to really break with that very linear understanding of history, I thought it was effective, hopefully an effective device to imagine what a successful revolutionary 20th century would have looked like. So the answer, I suppose, is to say that the insofar as it offers a critique, it offers a critique by imagining the alternative, offering a counterfactual history which portrays the alternative, and that's the critique, is to show that it's um, much better than the world that we actually inhabit, which I tried to characterize as a post-dystopian world um, in which we've become normalized and accustomed to... Um, dystopian tropes effectively as a result of the failure of the Russian Revolution and that the whole history of the 20th century and the left is shaped by that failure whether knowingly or not. Uh, there's obviously a presentation that is from the standpoint of, you said, of the present so there's something in the present that motivates this impulse, this imagination to create this imagination and you know a big question for me was kind of like what moment did you decide to write this what was going on when you decided to write this kind of like why did you write this now and how did the present uh, influence that the the idea came to me reading actually a book a counterfactual book about the assassination of archduke franz ferdinand so archduke franz ferdinand lives it's by a political scientist called richard ned lebeau who's done his best to attempt to make um, counterfactual analysis a staple of respectable social science. And my book is definitely not respectable social <laughs> science, but it was inspired by it was inspired by this um, book, which was published in 2014, among others, because it fuses with the the counterfactual analysis provided a kind of format. The tradition, I suppose, of utopianism, though I, you know, I, I mean, I do my own thing with it, but the tradition of political utopianism on the left, as well as the understanding analysis of left history over the course of the 20th century. So all of these things I sought to fuse together. So it was back in 2014, thinking about what was going to happen in uh, prospect in the future in 2017, imagining that there would be this wave of um, calumny and critique and moralism and uh, slander against the Russian Revolution. And I thought it would be good to try and, you know, already kind of been flinching in anticipation of that. I thought it would be good to try and preempt it by offering an alternative vision. So that was the, the moment began, I guess, the inspiration began a few years ago, thinking about the centenary of the First World War, um, the catastrophe that it represented for bourgeois civilization, European civilization, um, for international socialism, and thinking about how to, uh, to respond to the upcoming centenary of the Russian Revolution a few years later. 
I think in our own conversations, Audrey, Pam, and I, of kind of like the disappointment that it's it's not gone so strongly in either direction. Even the the slandering of the Bolshevik Revolution seems quite weak, but certainly a sense of celebrating. There's a general ambivalence with a lot of the stuff that we've been trying um, to read over the course of the last few months. And it seems kind of like the anticipation that, that was in our minds for this year seems to just fall into nothing or very, yeah, kind of very lame responses. It seems like in, since like the 2000s and the 2010s because of, I don't know, I guess there's like a return of politics in some ways. What do you think the, I guess, the drawbacks of sort of re-employing like grand narratives that have been pretty dormant, I guess, on the left for a while now after, I guess, like grand narratives is sort of like crashed upon the rocky shoals of postmodernism. Like, what do you think, I guess, the drawbacks of re-employing like grand narratives are today or like utopianism in that sense that you talked about? So the the case that I make in the book is that it's utopianism, given that scientific socialism is impossible um, and we've regressed behind utopian socialism. I make the case for <laughs> I make the case for um, what I call kind of virtual socialism or uh, retro kind of retro socialism, retro utopian socialism, which is the notion that what we kind of have nostalgia for, I suppose, is the future of the past rather than our own future. So the utopianism I try to re you know, I try to kind of re-energize, uh, briefly re-energize a utopian tradition in that in that respect. Um, and again, I mean, I suppose the one thing that I one thing that I wanted was to experiment with a grand narrative in a different format um, and the counterfactual format provided that alternative way to do it to offer a grand narrative of this um, wave of emancipation sweeping around the world rooted in the core in the core of the global economy in the core of the global political system in the 20th century and to provide that um, in detail as it were or at least a sketched out format of what that emancipation might look like. Because again, I think it's very, it's, you can kind of abstractly uh, invoke something or describe something or, you know, uh, criticize postmodernism, but to bring it alive, I suppose, and to activate people's imagination, which obviously is an important part of any kind of utopianism, it had to be done in such a way that it provided a sweep, um, a history and that it had detail within it, which would give people kind of handholds and grips on what it might have looked like. Who do you think is your ideal reader when you when you were writing this? Who did you who who did you have in mind as being the best possible reader of your book? So it's an interesting question because I thought about this, and it was I mean it was a very it's very uh, it's very experimental in terms of the stuff that I normally write about. So I think. I think the ideal reader would be somebody young, I guess, somebody in their early 20s, perhaps, who's interested in politics and social development and is looking towards the future. And ideally, I guess, to encourage that young reader to be less afraid of the future. I think that would be the ideal behind the book if they could be, because I think it's one thing to assert that the future could be better than the past. But I think, you know, it's kind of, it's an empty and abstract notion. But I think to really, reinforce that sense of optimism about the future and its possibilities it's important also to remind ourselves that the past could have been better as well i wanted to draw some connections here in the second part of our podcast we're going to be talking to some of our frankfurt members 
who just had a panel in 1917. And one of the things that came up during the panel was the support for parliamentary democracy. And the panel included a member of Delinka and a supporter of Delinka. And these two panelists argued that you need to vote for the people in power, the people that could be in power that would fight the fascists, that would prevent fascism from spreading. It was a very similar response to one of the panelists in our anti-fascism in the age of Trump panel in Berkeley that we discussed in our last podcast. A member of the Freedom Socialist Party, Luma Nicole, who answered a question by one of our members. He asked, isn't fighting for the revolution the most effective way of defeating fascism? And her response was not really a response to the question. It was an evasion of the question. She said, you know, if we're not... If we're not fighting against fascism, your revolution is not going to happen, right? And it's a very difficult position to deal with, I think, in part because it's provoked by a sense of fear and not by a sense of possibility. And so it seems to fall below the threshold of the kind of utopianism that you see in your book. Your book seems to be driven by a spirit of what is possible rather than the worst is yet to come. And we're sort of not living in that moment right now. That's not the spirit of the times. No, absolutely. And I can, uh, you know, affirm that sense from Brexit Britain, the derangement and unhingement of the liberal middle classes in response to Brexit has been truly something to behold. Um, The level of panic and irrationality about the um, kind of popular insurrection at the ballot box that's represented by Brexit is interesting. Um, and so I suppose it's the there is this um, belief. So it's not just, I suppose, the you know, it's not just restricted to it's not just restricted to um, uh, the you know, far left organizations, but more widely, there's this sense of apocalyptic imminent apocalyptic transformation that Britain is going to disintegrate into some kind of quasi-fascist state that's internationally isolated, economically impoverished, politically totalitarian. It's very, very, it's very, very strange um, because it's so out of kilter with reality and this sense of, um, the sense of imminent doom is so strongly rooted that it's something I think which is, um, which I think to some degree, I suppose, and this occurs to me just as I'm saying it, I suppose the left is complicit in, um, to some degree, perhaps beyond the scope of the influence of any specific left-wing organization. It's perhaps what the failure of the left has contributed to um, to 20th century society and 21st century society is that sense of apocalyptic imminence. Um, and so it's very, absolutely, and the if it's possible to, like I say, I mean, a way to kind of break out of that, at least I thought a way to break out of it, rather than just um, imagining a better future, was to go back and imagine a better past, that it would be another way to get people to think about the present and perhaps to get them from, to kind of get into, you know, to activate their sense of possibility in a different way that would perhaps catch them off guard and perhaps be more effective in destabilizing that sense of fatalism and that sense of dystopian imminence that everybody seems mm-hmm. to be um, captured in. Um, the author, Gregor Basak, says, so there's no new left in Conliff's uh, counterfactual history. There's no Stalinism. 
there's no anti-colonial revolt, there's no third world politics, and that there's no reinterpretation, basically, of human history as an essential war between homogeneous race groups. There's also no postmodern degeneration of thought, but also adding there is also no Frankfurt School, right? Or the ruminations of, of the Frankfurt School. And that sort of really does provoke this sense of, yeah, reflection on what could have been and the potential right to think about the future again differently that perhaps is quite absent on the left. Yeah, absolutely. And I hoped, I mean, I tried to cover as many bases as possible. So to that the, you know, not just that the post-colonial left would be, uh, have an absent third world, but those, uh, you know, sympathetic to the Frankfurters wouldn't have the Frankfurters. Uncle Joe obviously isn't there. The New Deal isn't there. Um, you know, so it was kind of, I tried to be as, uh, as generous as possible in um, kicking over as many idols as I could along the way, both <laughs> on the left and the right. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, I guess, what you think, Philip, about, like, uh, Gregor was saying, sort of on a critical note, that more attention should have been paid to, like, the failure of the Second International Radicals, like, well, specifically with the SPD um, and Luxembourg's group. You know, just the idea that, like, the proto-fascistic right wing of the SPD um, had sort of developed as a result of the failure of the left in a lot of ways, like the worst dystopianism of the 20th century was like the failure of the left. I think maybe he's just expressing a kind of anxiety with like a lot of groups that we have now, like Pam was talking about um, the person from the Freedom Socialist Party, who's sort of treating fascism as like an atomized political phenomenon rather than being attached to the failure of the left. I don't know, I guess what, yeah, I think that it seems like obviously that that connection should be more explicit nowadays for to kind of reduce like the opportunistic assessment of I guess what's being called fascism right now yeah I guess I wonder what you thought yeah about. I, I mean I I mean I yeah I mean I would agree I as for, as for Gregor's um criticism with regards to uh the missing parts of the story uh I mean inevitably you know with this with this kind of a uh, exercise people will be disappointed by the parts of the story that have been left out um, another person has mentioned to me that I don't discuss in enough detail um, what would have happened to the Labour Party and the counterfactual, um, the counterfactual story, and that was deliberate, you know, because I suppose at least for the Labour Party, because uh, that was as much attention as I wanted to give them by not talking about them at all. <laughs> um, for the for the second international, for the second international, um, the background to and the failures to triumph over the reformists in the earlier period. Um, I suppose there are two responses to that. One is that it's, um, you know, it's the centenary of the Russian Revolution rather than the centenary of the failures of the, the earlier failures of the Second International. So there was a limit to how much you can kind of reach backwards and loop forwards. And I tried to, you know, hook it around the centenary as much as possible. But also beyond that, I think um, I didn't want to, I wanted to leave a veil over the exact kind of moment of victory. Uh, or what the kind of crucial hinge was that leads to a different alternative 20th century. And that was deliberate because I didn't want to engage in the game of uh, identifying the moment of original sin in the failure of the left, because I think that's a trap. Um, and this is a point, actually, that both uh, Slavoj Žižek and Chris Katron have made separately, is um, this attempt to identify a single moment on which everything turns, I think, is a mistake. So by the same token, I didn't want to identify a moment, a single moment by which um, victory is entirely assured. 
so that I think you know that was the that perhaps is an answer to Gregor's concern about the absent um, the absent critique of the second international. Right. Well, that's great. I think that that actually is uh, <laughs> our time. Uh, thank you so much, Philip, for joining us. Thanks, Philip. Thank you. You can read the review online in patapus1917.org. The book is out from Zero Book Publishers this year. It's available on Amazon. If you want to read it, give it a go. And yeah, next time actually we'll have a dual book review by Philip in the December issue of the Patapus Review. Look out for that one. Okay, bye guys. Thanks, Philip. Thank you. Bye. deep shit <laughs> yeah there's a there's a review from back in the day actually from the first ever platypus review issue november 2007 uh local publication new city chicago reviewed the platypus affiliated society as the platypus reviews published by a group of leftists or neo-marxists participating in an intellectual revolution platypus engages heavy topics for heavy times <laughs> It was a good early moment, as opposed to academic claptrap by the Spartacists. Oh, and I love that pamphlet, too. That one's a good one. That pamphlet was other, like, proud moment, I, I know. think, to what be honest. What is the whole name, though? Oh, it's such a nice name. Something uh, imperialist. Petty academic bourgeois claptrap. academic claptrap Pseudo-Marxist pro-imperialist academic claptrap. Oh, no petty bourgeois. Hmm. Actually, that is from the same uh, month and year. It was probably because we were working on the imperialism forum, yeah? They leafleted. They showed up, the Spartacists show up at the imperialism forum, which was anti-imperialism question mark forum, which was our first panel ever in Chicago, the school of the Institute of Chicago. And they showed up to leaflet. And it was the youth club. It was the Spartacus Youth Club. And so there were like these young people. We were very proud of ourselves. Will went to their (laughs) event, one of their events recently on the the Russian Revolution, the centenary, and they were like, didn't you read what we wrote about platypus? And he was like, yeah, but then I read Chris's response. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't you read that? (laughs) We're one of the more careful readers, actually, of the Spartacus. They really dislike that. I saw them in Berlin recently at the March 21 conference. And it was interesting because we were tabling out across from each other and I was there and there was a whole bunch of kids but my subscription to the workers vanguard had run out so we're like let's go let's go renew so we can get our workers vanguard so when we walk over there like we start like hey we just want to get the subscription and they they pull the form out and like we're filling out the form and they're like and the woman just says to us like you know that they are imperialists right and we're like you know that they is us. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like a weird moment where I was just like, you're talking to a founding member of Platypus, tell me how my imperialist, please. Good times. And then I, she was kind of like paralyzed. Our Alex was like, awkward, because it was just like, we're just trying to get sign up for your paper subscription, and you're trying to tell us that yeah, we're... Just, just give me your paper. Yeah. You can call me an imperialist. Just, just give me the paper. The anti <laughs> We're, we're going to learn a lot more from it. <laughs> Is there anything yeah. more miserable than the anti-imp left? One of them recently hit our reading group leader with a water bottle, like physically assaulted him. So oh my God. not too keen on them. Oh no. <laughs> no. It's unforgivable. It is. That's unforgivable. <laughs> Just keep that's, keep your water bottles to you know. yourselves. <laughs> that that's one of my uh first hand encounters with the anti-imp like new left. And it was not good.
I should mention Will is the only other member, too. So I think I said Will earlier. He's a member of Berkeley Platypus. It's the three of us. The three musketeers braving that's it. That's right. We're yep. the three musketeers, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Wait. Yep. Oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) And she's sober. I got it. She's the one that's sober right now. I got it. (laughs) Everyone is sober right now. Sort of. (laughs) Now for the second part of the podcast. My name is Pam Nagalis. I recently had a conversation with two of our members in Frankfurt, they just held the panel discussion 1917-2017 at Goethe University in Frankfurt. They will talk to us about how the conversation went, what they thought were the main points of agreement and disagreements. They'll introduce the panelists to us. The two people that you'll hear are our members, Frederick Hines, who is a political theory grad student at Goethe University. And the second person that you'll hear is Lucas Hedrich, and he is studying philosophy as an undergraduate at the university. Um, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about who was on the panel, and then I want to ask you some questions about how the discussion went. Okay, first we had uh, Frank Kula. Uh, he's a German philosopher. He's a student of Christoph Menke, who is also a uh, philosopher from Frankfurt. But uh, much more, he's a, he's a friend and following the thought of uh, Slavoj Žižek. So he's part in this uh, Ljubljana school. Furthermore, he is now chief editor, together with, with uh, Argon Hamza, of the magazine Crisis and Critique. Then we had uh, Lars Quadfase. He is member and co-founder, I think, of the so-called uh, Hamburger Studienbibliothek for um, critical thoughts. As they is it an actual space? Himself. It's an actual space, yeah. Okay. It's an actual library. Last Quadfasel is an uh, outcome, to say so, from the anti-Deutsch movement in the 90s. We also had Anton Storchilov, who's uh, an active member of Die Linke. And the final panelist uh, is Raphael Rehm, who's a member of on the International Marxist Tendency um, and also active at their organ, Der Funke, the spark in English. That's a reference to Lenin's Iskra. You told me that he was doing his doctoral thesis on a kind of synthesis of Walter Benjamin and Trotsky. Yeah, exactly. That's okay. right. What do you think were their primary disagreements and maybe their main agreements? So I think the biggest disagreement was one between Frank Ruda and Lars Quadfasel on the one side and then Anton and Raphael on the other side. And it was about the participation in a parliamentary party, of course in the, the, the party Die Linke. Raphael and Anton both defended the participation in such a party system and defended the participation in parliamentary democracy, whereas Frank Ruder and Lars Quadfasel were much more critical about that. Frank Ruder more explicitly so than Lars Quadfasel even uh, attacked the democratic party system with Lenin, actually, and uh, called it out to be the best way for the bourgeoisie to control society. And, and Raphael and Anton defended the the party, however, mostly I think I, I think Anton made it very strong to defend this, the status of democracy at all, which is, as he said, simply a better battleground for socialism as, uh, let's say, fascism. Did he think that going into 
Delinka or voting for Delinka would prevent fascism? I, th I think uh, that was at least Anton's argument and Raphael's too. I guess what, what Anton was referring to is the shift to right-wing politics also in Germany as in whole Europe. Um, so in Germany you have the uprising of the uh, Alternative for Germany, the National Right-Wing Populist Party here. And of course the, the party Die Linke sees itself at least as the, the counterpart to that. So they want to, yeah, in some way defend democracy against the, the right-wing shift. But a lot of things that he actually pointed out that would be beneficial of these democratic parties have actually been by interaction with more radical left-wing groups. So I'm not even sure because he himself doesn't really talk, didn't really talk about it on the panel, but more protected the idea of democratic parties as being against uh, fascism. Yeah, I think this is something that we didn't really get him to point out exactly where his position was. Right. I mean, he was very explicit about the his his view that uh, the party Die Linke could never be a revolutionary party, as he as he um, called it. He was very explicit and and open about that, right? So neither did he see the, the party Die Linke um, as ever revolutionary, nor does he see a perspective of it becoming revolutionary. This is. Who are you speaking of as voicing this opinion? Anton, sorry. Anton, Anton. yeah, okay. Anton. Uh -huh. right. The Delinker. Delinker, right. Mm -hmm. and I, I, but I think Raphael would agree with that, probably. So I think both of them would agree. Whereas Frank and Lars would find that, I think, rather cynical, in a sense. But they would agree that Delinker is not a revolutionary party. So everyone on the panel actually would agree that Delinker is not a revolutionary party. I think Quadfather made it quite explicit, but I think also Frank Ruda following Zizek would probably agree that um, the point is that the Linke isn't really an instrument that prevents rises of right-wing groups. For example, I think Zizek is kind of famously quoting Benjamin there uh, that um, fascism is following um, a failed revolution, and I think uh, Quadfazel also was kind of explicit how the Linke seems to be more of something that's in the way of making actual revolutionary politics and not something that benefits it by making room for something where more left-wing politics could start from. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick commentary break and then we'll be back with the Frankfurt members. So I thought that this was going to be a more informal conversation for those of you listening out there, but... These are intensely German members of ours who came very prepared and ready to go through their notes. I guess I didn't really know what the panel discussion was about. I'd asked them the day before and all of them just felt really disappointed because they thought the conversation was too abstract and they couldn't really tell me what it was about. So we thought that we would have this on the podcast to give them a chance to work through what it was about. I think they wanted someone who could say, like, okay, the transitional program and the dictatorship of the proletariat, and this is what the sectarian Marxists can, you know, sometimes deliver on or at least support. And that's the connection to the to this panel discussion, of course. Like, why we why Delinka and why somebody an organization like the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency, makes an argument for participating in current day bourgeois parliamentary politics. 
uh, meaning there's a justification there with relation to like how do we stop fascism? Yes, the politics of fear, and this is what Cunliffe was, I think, trying to get at in the first part of the podcast. You know, we do live in a period in which the left is driven by fear, not a sense of utopianism and possibility. You know, otherwise these people perhaps would consider the horizon of what's possible as opposed to preventing the fascists from coming. But I mean, that was my that, that was my point. I was trying to get at um, when, with my first question, which is just like like leftist utopianism nowadays is seen as like comically irrelevant or a nefarious like bogey against like relativism. So it's like, I mean, that's a pretty steep uphill battle. Um, I mean, I yeah, but if the left doesn't care about freedom, it's like why call yourself a leftist? No, no, exactly. But I'm just saying, like, we, there's still like a lot of. I mean, there's still like a huge like a postmodern prejudice to overcome, I guess, on the left. So. And then the Trotskys was supporting Derry down for co, right? So I mean, it's very confusing <laughs> out there. You got to watch out. This is what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's jump back into the report so we can hear what the other two panelists had to say. So here we go again. Die Link is not a revolutionary party. The threat of fascism is real. So we have to at least vote left-wing parties that would fight the threat of fascism. Ruda and Quad Fasol are cynical that this can be done by simply voting for Delinka. So what was their contribution to the conversation? Why should we think about 1917 today? So I think that's exactly the point when I think the discussion became, in a sense, more abstract than it was talking about the party d mm -hmm. right? Because then you have the problem that either Frank nor Lars Quadfasel would say that there is a um, political party that could achieve progressive politics at the moment. And immediately the question is, so what, what do we have then at all? And... To, to grab up the uh, legacy of 1917 was for both of them, and in that point they, they seem to agree, that remembering 1917 must always mean to somehow work through 1917. And maybe then it's, it's uh, good to first talk about how Frank Ruder thinks about this concept. And he really takes it up from uh, Zizek, who just published an article repeating, remembering, uh, working through. So it's this Freudian phrase, which he applies to, to, to 1917. And but Zizek is a Lacanian. Yeah, right, right. So it's sort of Freud question mark. It's more like Freud through Lacan. But maybe you can tell me what Ruda, what Ruda meant. So Ruda meant, I think that, first of all, you would have to you would have to agree that 1917 was a trauma for the left and not only 1917 but also 1914 so the defeat of social democracy of german social democracy by voting uh, for the credits to enter into the first world war so if that's a trauma for the left then remembering 1917 for uh, ruda means in a sense to recognize the problems that came out of 1917 as one owns problems, self-consciously acting with 1917. And the task Ruda sees today, I think, is to repeat Lenin, but in a, in a conscious way, somehow. And then the question is, of course, what does that mean? Right? Yes, what does this mean? What does it mean to, to, to repeat Lenin consciously? When he talked about working it through, 
it seemed to me kind of problematic who's actually working it through because he was kind of referring to people who try to be leftists today but this seemed to be some kind of thing that normally the party would do like or maybe in a different way the actual subject uh, in the marxist tradition isn't just different individual people but there has to be a, so a social uh, subject and it seems to be unclear what working it through actually means because it's not even clear who's actually working on it mm -hmm. even though one would actually buy his uh, argument right the the question was actually asked from the audience our first round of discussion and the answer frank ruder gave to the audience was reference to lenin again and said that working through for him man, uh, would mean the same as Lenin worked through the Commune of Paris. The Paris Commune. The Paris Commune, mm -hmm. right. Of so, 1871. Exactly. So in remembering 1871, Lenin tried to recognize the problems that emerged from that moment and working through it in a practical way, right, through politics. And then again, the issue would be, okay, so Lenin, right, Lenin had this party and everything. He had a second international. And in a sense, this party builds a subject that could actually work through this moment politically. But then again, the question would be, what does it mean today? So there's, to me, there's a, a void between this reference from Lenin and today's politics. I have two questions. One is about the way that you both are using subject. So, Lucas, you said, in the Marxist tradition, in the sense of a social subject. And Freddie, you just said, in the times of Lenin, the party would be the subject. And I guess I'm wondering what that means. And the second question that I have was, if Ruda's recommendation is that we grab up, we tackle the problems, the political problems that come up in 1917 as our problems, Did they talk about what were those problems? Uh, maybe first on the second question. At least one problem that was pointed out often was the bureaucratization. Like Ruda even gave an example of a way that was trying to deal with this problem as the uh, Shanghai Commune. Like he was referring to this idea of getting the masses to be in the political action again and oppose the bureaucrats would be some kind of example of, of this. But he also said that it failed terribly. This was, I guess, one of the main problems mentioned mm -hmm. on the panel. And the subject question? Well, what does it mean? What did you mean when you uh, said the party was the subject? By, I'm just curious about that okay. specifically. <laughs> yeah, rightly so. Um, by calling the party the subject, I meant that in a sense the, the party would stand for the, the conscious part in society that tries to learn from historical moments, right? And tries to think them through and then apply it somehow, in some sense. And so, in, to stick to the theme from Ruda, it's in some sense the patient, I think, right? So my, my question was, if, if he described it as a neurosis, you have a trauma and then you have to like remember and you have to work, work it through, right? Then my question would be, who is the patient working this through? Consciously. Consciously, mm -hmm. right. And may maybe you could also ask who's the analyst, right? Yeah. We have to wrap up our conversation, but maybe I will just ask you one quick question. 
I know that in conversation with members of Frankfurt, you all felt that the discussion was too abstract, not political enough. Did you feel like they wanted to impart a reason why you should revisit 1917? If so, how? I think all of them agreed that, that 1917 marked a relevant point for the left mm -hmm. in some senses. So Raphael, member of the international Marxist tendency, I think he would probably still see him, see himself and see his politics very much linked to the moment of 1917. And what he would always make strong is um, not only to talk about the outcome of the defeat of 1917, but much more about the potential in 1917 in terms of, well, it obviously went wrong, but maybe it could have taken another turn. That's, I think, his, his way to address 1917. And then the discussion between Frank Ruder and Lars Quadfaser. Okay, so both of them were received as uh, much more abstract. But then again, I think there, both of them had their connotations. So, I mean, that Ruder tended to emphasize much more of a continuity, I think, from 1917 to today. I think what seems so abstract to me the question of the patient doesn't seem to so so abstract to him. I I think at least that what he would he would say is that in some sense the left as a force or something right is this patient. Mm -hmm. All of the left is this patient, mm -hmm. and all of them needs to work this through. And that's in a sense also what what Zizek writes. And he doesn't make it really clearer what that would mean. Whereas Lars would be more skeptical of that, more skeptical that, that this force exists at all. Mm -hmm. And both of them, by the way, were skeptical of the term left at all. Just as you mentioned Lars, I think he also kind of made a reference to um, a text by Lenin where he talks about how, where he makes this picture of one climbing a mountain where the rest is standing at the bottom of it and he has to climb down again because... Uh, Retreat. Yeah. The problem of retreat. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think like the whole picture, Lars kind of wanted to point out how today we have been on a false top maybe and uh, now we have to find a new way how to work it out. And I think he even said there are people trying to work on this. I'm not really sure what concretely this means, like where he sees this example of people right now working on new ways, but he seemed to say, yeah, this fails we have to deal with it and now we have to find a new way to the top dealing with with a different situation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right but Ruda actually uh, agrees to that totally I think and again Zizek even recalls this essay by Lenin in his book but I think the difference and maybe it's a slight difference right but I think the difference between uh, Frank Ruda and Las Quattrofasel maybe was that uh, Frank is much more sure about the fact that the climber is still trying to climb the mountain, whereas Lars Quadfasel maybe doesn't, isn't not so sure who the climber is. It's <laughs> a good point to end with. Uh, well, thank you for our conversation, and hopefully we will have a transcript, a translation of the 1917 panel in the Platypus Review, so look out for that. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You understand that it is entirely inappropriate to feature a communist leader in the lobby of a Rockefeller building. No. We're going to have to insist that the face be removed. Absolutely not. There was no indication in your sketches you would be featuring communist leaders in the mural. 
You were hired on the basis of said sketches, and you've changed them. It's not fair. Lenin stays! Okay. So why does 1917 matter? The big question. Yeah, it's a good question. That's a question. <sighs> yep. You know, I have to say that I like why does 1917 matter is so bent up to why platypus for me. Um, I don't know if that's the same for you, Pam. It just feels like the moment of 1917 and trying to make sense of the possibility that once existed of world revolution is so bound up to Palestine's own assessment of the death of the left. Meaning we, <laughs> we you know, put the name on our website, Palestine 1917, for this reason. But, um, you know, I, it's the most profound yeah. attempt to change the world. That has ever taken place, possibly. And I would begin there. I, I do feel like I inherited it. You know, the 1917 was attached to a website before I fully understood what it meant. I mean, I'm still working on what the heck it meant. But I, I felt like there was an inherited problem that I was trying to wrap my head around. And, you know, recently we had this panel, 1917-2017, at the International Convention in April in Chicago, and Brian Palmer, who's a historian, so maybe he speaks to me in a particular way because I'm a historian, he said, well, you know, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what did 1917 mean for people around the world, especially for working people around the world? What kind of potential possibility of transformation did it represent? And it was an opening, right? It was, it meant that a better and a freer world was possible, that it could be attained. It wasn't just a pipe dream, um, that there could be steps towards which it could be gained, it could be realized. And it left an impression on me because, yeah, we, we don't really live in utopian times. We're, you know, we live in post-apocalyptic times. And so just to think that there was a time in which the working population imagined that a freer world was possible, that it wasn't just a lie, by a bunch of capitalists. I don't know, it left an impression on me, I guess. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when I was in school, I mean, I spent a lot of time on Rawls and the communitarian debates in the 80s, and so my orientation to Marxism was like uh, like the same as like utilitarianism or something. It was like, oh, well, if it doesn't respect the empirical limits of the existence of reasonable disagreement on big questions, then it's not necessarily wrong so much as useless because like you could only achieve a consensus like through coercion basically and so it's just like without even really getting into it it's out can't even consider it like you know religion or something so and then that's a huge downer and there's really nothing left to like pursue and like um you know after like grand narratives have been resigned i mean there's or retired i guess it's just like you just have your ego, just like spend a, spend a lot of time on being a really good writer. And it doesn't really, there's nothing, it's not for anything. I mean, it's just so bleak. I kind of like gave up on grad school for that reason. Like I, before I even knew why I was like, I felt undermined by it. I was already like disenchanted. And then I, it took me a while to realize like, oh, I'm probably not going to end up going to grad school after all. But you know what I've realized over time? I don't know, is that, that like Platypus's attempt to foster an education on 
the Russian Revolution on 1917 on the 2nd International, so, <laughs> or 1848 to 1917 moment, it's, it was really to foster an education on politics. I mean, I went to art school, that was certainly absent, but I found that, um, I, that this was really fostering an education on politics for me. Uh, but the, I guess the platypus foil to that is that we're doing so, we're fostering an education on politics in a post-political world, to put like a pithy platypus formulation to it. But, yeah. But, yeah. It's an uphill battle. It's definitely an uphill battle. But, yeah. but nonetheless, we still do it. There's something really like pie in the sky, like inspirational about it in some ways. Like, I mean, just remembering this, that there's a political movement that was geared towards like universal human emancipation. Like there needs to be more time spent on that and not through the way that all these other groups have their little 1917 like um, presentations. They go through, it's like a rote thing. They go through the history of it, of, you know, between March and November and all that. But there's no... I mean, people fall asleep at this stuff. Like, there's no point. Why are they throwing it? I don't know, you know. It's because it has no spirit. It has yeah. no spirit, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it comes off as being like, well, if you're on the left, you need to know that this and this happened. I'm not against anyone, obviously, learning the history of this revolution. Yeah. And there are, plenty of, there, there are plenty of sources out there. But I think the most of the left treats this without any spirit, Meaning it, it becomes a kind of dogmatic rehearsal of what we should aspire to. And, you know, that's why I really like the Cunliffe um, and his whole project, right? Which is, we have to kind of face the fact that it was defeated. It failed. And that's really the lesson that, that we ought to aspire for so much more. I mean, I think one of our members in London, one of our members in London, Ephraim, uh, he wrote me on Facebook that... He hopes that there are so many new struggles for human emancipation in the coming decades that 1917 as an anniversary is essentially forgotten. Though we don't even have to celebrate it on the left because it would it would be remembered as like the blip that, you know, the, the moment that didn't happen the first try and that we could just celebrate much, much better uh, and much bigger realizations of, of mm -hmm. human freedom. That's, that's yeah, that, if the future is that, then, you know, if that's what 1917 could mean. That's then the I right right way to look at it. Then Lenin stays. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that is the taboo. It's like 1917 is celebrated, but Lenin, question mark. It's mm -hmm. complicated and people avoid it. Yeah, Lenin Especially is at the events I've gone to. Yeah. Well, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I would go like, you know, that was the best thing about the summer reading group that we did because, you know, we usually don't focus that much in 1917 in our main reading group. And the summer reading group, which was just reading Lenin through the major yeah. events of yeah. 1917, right? It was demystifying because yes. it, it was yeah. just like, yeah. like compared to everything that was come out this year and that we've been reading and whatever, you just go straight. And read Lenin through February, through April, through June, through October, and like it's it's massively clear. It's like the controversy around Lenin is just kind of like what haunts the left. Right. But if you just go well, straight to the man, go it's, ahead. It's clear, and it's not clear. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think you're right. Right. It's not like a sort of mystifying figure, 
And it was extremely clarifying. We had a really good conversation in Berlin about the Soviets and what were the Soviets? What does it mean to organize production this way? What does it mean that the Soviets were not the state and, and yet all power to the Soviets and these kinds of questions that was extremely clarifying. You know, but because we don't live in these revolutionary, we don't live in revolutionary times, the meaning of those historical lessons is still obscure to me. And this is, this is where I take issue with people like the Spartacists and, you know, people that we actually respect and take a good deal of their literature and use it for our education, which is that they, they, they're stuck in the 30s or, you know, at, at best. Or, and they think that they can just repeat the same slogan, right? That they can just sort of quote Lenin today and that it's going to mean the same thing. But it's actually doing a disservice to the message of these revolutionaries to repeat it as if it could activate something in the present, because you have to deal with the present, right? You have to like deal with the barbarism of the present to imagine a future in which these, these concerns could matter again. And you can't really force them to matter because they don't. Yeah, I think that's been the big lesson of 2017. <laughs> yeah. No one cares. Yeah. No one cares. I mean, that's what <laughs> no you mentioned. You mentioned it at the Cunliffe uh, conversation, you know, and it really struck me. It was kind of depressing. You know, the first uh, platypus meeting that we, we had, uh, the many platypus meetings that we used to have where we used to talk about the texts uh, uh, in our old apartment with the first group of platypus members. And we put on the board, you know, okay, it was 2007 at the time, and we put 2017 World Revolution. <laughs> yeah, 2017, World Revolution, 10 years. Like, let's get Bummer. to it. And so there was this anticipation. Hey, guys, though, right, Bernie, Bernie Sanders, though. Hey, Bernie Sanders happened. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> World Revolution. Or the Democrats just want to be more like FDR. <laughs> yeah, had a particularly nostalgic, uh, like, sheep herding. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, and yeah. no one really cared about the center. I mean, no one really cared about the centennial that much. And you, you know, the New York Times had some awful article, but it's the New York Times, so. Um, <laughs> but no one was even pissed off enough. Putin was like, the official government released a statement like, we will not officially celebrate this in any capacity. Period. We are officially <laughs> announcing that we will not do anything official to celebrate the century. <laughs> there was like a big release to the international press. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, they can't even deal with it. But that's kind of responding to it in a way. They should have just not released a statement. Just been like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Like, it's just another day. Just another year. No, as somebody who works in journalism, <laughs> I can imagine they were receiving 200 emails a day and calls mm. a day. We're like, when are you mm -hmm. going to announce what you're doing? We need the headlines. Mm -hmm. Tell us. And they were like, okay, officially, yeah. we're not doing anything. Leave us alone. Yeah, it's official. It doesn't matter. There was the video that I shared of Boris Kargolitsky, the Soviet dissident that we've had in several of our panels. And he's, he's walking around the Aurora with his daughter just sort of talking to her about what what was the memory of of this revolution and and the kind of imagined memory it was oh, wow. sweet it was like this generational transfer right this kind of memory that was being passed that otherwise would be forgotten it was like a little message in the bottle <laughs> you know it was like we we care, you know, and I guess in that sense, it is connected to platypus. Like, we, we care. 
We care in ways in which we don't just want you to repeat the words of Lenin. We want you to think about the spirit of the revolution, even if what it means today is to be extremely confused mm -hmm. about what it could mean. We think it's important, but maybe that's the most honest yeah. that we can be. For sure. Go read Lenin. Go read Lenin, guys, and, <laughs> and maybe we'll trust you too. too. And be careful, like Mills said. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Peace.